So Errol Spence takes on Sean Porter this weekend in a welterweight unification, IBF and WBC. It's a fight which hasn't really gone under the radar as such, but hasn't received the kind of promotion and fanfare that you might have hoped or expected for a unification involving two of the welterweight division's biggest names. Now, perhaps it's because Errol Spence is a firm favorite in this fight. I haven't looked at the betting odds, but me personally, I think Spence is a firm favorite. I could be wrong, right? Sean Porter could upset him, but I feel like Spence is getting better and better every fight, and Sean Porter might actually be on the decline now. The Ugas fight was not an impressive performance, and many people, including myself, feel like he actually lost and was very, very fortunate to walk away with his world title. Ugas, a strong fighter, yes, but unspectacular. Errol Spence is far superior to Ugas, okay, at least in my opinion. Now, I'm not saying that Sean Porter's got no chance here because he definitely does. He's strong. And I'm expecting a better Sean Porter than we saw against Ugas. He's going to be more motivated against Errol Spence. He knows what he's up against. He has a goal to shoot for. He knows he has to raise his game. But I just feel as though Errol Spence is the fresher guy. I feel like he's got the higher ceiling as a fighter. I think Sean Porter has probably reached this ceiling. And Sean Porter's a good fighter. You know, he can box on the back foot. He's not just a pressure guy. He gets stereotyped and labeled as this just wild swinging mauler who comes out like the Tasmania devil and doesn't really have any uh, technique or boxing acumen there. But that's really unfair because he does. Sean Porter can get on his toes, box and move around the ring. We saw that in the Keith Furman fighting spots. He didn't just pressure Furman all the time. At times, he got on his back foot and started moving around. And, and that is actually when he had some of his best moments is when he was moving around against Keith Furman and keeping him guessing, confusing him. So, yes, it's unfair to say that Sean Porter's one-dimensional. But when Porter does, and look, on the, on the back foot, he's shorter than everybody else for the most part. So he it can be effective, but against an Errol Spence, do I think Sean Porter will be that effective on the back foot? I mean, I think probably not. But we'll see. Sean Porter does have fast feet. So even though he's a short guy, his foot speed on the back foot does, you know, give him an advantage over certain guys. Does he have faster feet than Errol Spence? Maybe. I think Errol Spence doesn't have the quickest feet in the world, but a lot of the time he chooses to be stationary. If he wants to get up on his toes and produce more movement, I think he probably can. Uh, but when... Uh, Sean Porter comes forward and I think he inevitably will against Errol Spence because Spence can box very well at long range. We saw that in the Mikey Garcia fight. I think Porter inevitably will come forward and as hard as him and his dad have trained, as many times as they have been over these drills of defense and offense coming forward, he's still sloppy in that department. And because he's still sloppy, he's going to leave gaps for Errol Spence. Gaps which I think Spence will fully capitalize on. I'm not expecting a one-sided fight. <clears throat> I'm not expecting a blowout. I'm expecting this fight to go the distance. But I think the Errol Spence will emerge the, the, the winner. And 
I'd be surprised if it's even controversial, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think Spence is on the ascendancy. He has all the momentum behind him. He's the one who's improving fight after fight. He hasn't been in as many tough fights as Sean Paul has been in. And that does take a toll. And not just the tough fights, but the tough sparring that Sean Paul has had over the years. So that's my take on it, man. If Sean Porter was in his prime right now, and you know, some people are probably going to argue that he perhaps still is, I personally don't see it that way. But if he was, I'd probably be more excited for the fight, you know? Because when you have a top-level fight, a unification, it's most exciting if you feel as though you're not sure who's going to win. When you are sure, or when you're very confident that one individual is going to win the fight, it's not that it's not as exciting. You understand? It's the, the unknown that makes fights exciting. So when you've got these big heavyweight fights, for example, we all wanted to see, or I wanted to see, Wilder versus AJ, because I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> you know, somebody was going to get knocked out. I knew that. But who would it be and at what point in the fight? You know, didn't know what was going to happen. That's what made it exciting. With Spence Porter, I feel like I know what's going to happen. I feel like Spence is going to be the sharper guy. He's going to use his height and reach well. He's going to engage Porter on the inside only when he needs to. And when he does, Spence is very good on the inside, people. You know, he's not like a Kel Brook who's just going to hold Porter every single time Porter gets close. Now, it will be interesting, to be fair, to see how Spence deals with Porter's strength. Porter didn't look that strong against you guys. I mean, was that a sign that he's maybe struggling at the weight? Um, but in most fights, Sean Porter is very physically strong up close. Rough houses people and whatnot. Be interesting to see if Spence is as strong or stronger than him. Because Spence is very physically strong himself. We've seen him bulldoze fighters. Remember when he fought Chris Algieri? Just walked straight through him. So, yeah, going to be interesting to see how Errol Spence deals with the physicality of Porter. But from a technical point of view, I don't think uh, Spence has got that much to worry about, to be honest. Porter is, you know, competent, but he makes plenty of mistakes. Yeah, Spence, to me, is the more technically polished of the two. Uh, as I say, the, the athleticism, the, the, the legs of, Port, of uh, Spence might not be quite as fast as Porter's legs, and maybe, but then again, have let, as Porter's legs slowed down as he's gotten older. There's questions there, definitely, which is why I wouldn't put my house on Errol Spence winning, but I would say, in my mind, this is like 70-30 in Spence's favor. That's what it is in my mind, yeah? Again, I don't know what the bookies odds are, but that's how I would have it. So I'm expecting Errol Spence to win this fight on a 12-round unanimous decision. Maybe majority decision. Uh, I'll be surprised if it's split. I reckon majority or unanimous. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. How are you expecting this fight to go? Do you think there's going to be an upset? Do you think that Errol Spence has got too arrogant? Because that's what some people are saying. If Spence has got too arrogant, he's feeling himself a bit too much at the moment. And he's going to come unstuck because of that. I mean, maybe they got a point. We'll see. Drop it below in the comment section. It's happening. I'm out. Frank Warren says that the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury rematch is still possible for February, despite the fact that Tyson Fury suffered a horrendous cut in his recent bout against Otto Wallen. Cuts like that take a long time to heal. Now, I'm no plastic surgeon, 
obviously. But I've been following the sport of boxing for decades. I've been involved in the sport of boxing for a very long time. And in my experience, a cut like that will not only take several months to heal, but normally it will never heal as good as new. It will never be 100%. And you'll, you'll always be vulnerable to the scar tissue reopening. That's from what I've seen over the years in my experience. You know, I remember when Tyrell Biggs fought a guy called David Bay back in the late 1980s. And Biggs suffered a bad cut, not as bad as Tyson Fury's cut, mind, but it was still a bad cut over one of his eyes in a David Bay fight. And after that fight, which he won, he fought a journeyman who he blew out in a couple of rounds. So he didn't really get hit against the journeyman. And then he fought Mike Tyson. So between the David Bay fight where he suffered the cut and the Tyson fight, it might've been like nine or 10 months. But within what, two or three rounds in the Tyson fight, that cut that he suffered against David Bay opened up again. So he had like 10 months for that cut to heal. And it opened up very, very soon in the Tyson fight. Now, obviously since then, and you know, Mike Tyson hits very hard, but also since then, I have to imagine that uh, plastic surgery and whatnot has improved a lot. You know, the, uh, the methods that they use to make these cuts heal, maybe putting you on a certain diet or using certain, uh, I don't know, coagulants or chemicals or whatever the case may be. Maybe they've just got better methods of making cuts heal these days than they did in the 1980s. But that's just one example of where a guy had a decent amount of time to recover from the cut, but it opened up straight away as soon as he got hit on it. I mean, another example would be Vitaly Klitschko. When he fought Lennox Lewis, he suffered some horrendous cuts on his face. Now, Klitschko really didn't get hit at all from the Lennox Lewis fight through the rest of his career. He wasn't getting hit on his eyes. Occasionally, he'd catch a shot on the chin or on the cheek, but he really wasn't getting hit on the eyes. He was such a tall guy. Most of his opponents were much shorter than him, and Klitschko would lean back. I'm talking about Vitali. He would lean back from punches. So if you did catch him, again, you tended to catch him on the chin or in the cheeks, uh, very rarely on the eyes. But when he fought Kevin Johnson, and that must have been God knows how many years after he fought Lewis, was it six, seven years after he fought Lennox Lewis? He fought Kevin Johnson, and Johnson was managing to catch him on the eyes with jabs. And you could see the scar tissue reddening, the scar tissue from the Lennox Lewis fight reddening on Klitschko's face. I can't remember if he was actually bleeding in that fight against Kevin Johnson. He might have been. But all those years later, that scar tissue was still fragile. You know? So, from what I've seen in boxing, I have to imagine that that eye of Tyson Fury's will never be the same again. That right eye. The scar tissue there is going to reopen when somebody catches it with a decent one. Again, unless the advances in uh, surgery are way beyond my imagination, then that's what's going to happen. How long is it between now and February? We're in uh, September now, October, November, December, January, February, five months. Is it enough time for it to heal sufficiently? Because again, I'm not expecting it to ever heal 100% to where it's as strong as it originally was. I think it might get to, I don't know, 
70% of what it was before, 60%. But will it get to that stage in just five months? Or will it need 10 months? Will it need a year to heal as much as it possibly can? Even though it will never be as good as new, to heal as much as it possibly can. How long does it need? Uh, I think five months is probably a bit ambitious. Frank Warren has to stay positive, obviously. But at the same time, he needs to be looking out for Tyson Fury's best interest. I hope that Tyson Fury doesn't get rushed into the Deontay Wilder rematch. And you have to imagine that that's what Wilder's people will be aiming to do. You know, boxing is a cutthroat, not only sport, but also a cutthroat business. So Wilder's team will be looking to get Tyson Fury in the ring ASAP. <laughs> not only because he looked vulnerable in that performance, but because he got cut. They don't want to give that uh, cut adequate time to heal. They want to get him so Wilder can land a jab on that cut and open it right up. And that's what Deontay Wilder, be, Wilder will be looking to do. So, uh, yeah. We'll see what happens, people. But let me know what you think in the comment section below. You know, I just want to see the best version, the healthiest version of Tyson Fury fight Deontay Wilder. I don't want to see a compromised Fury. Same way I wouldn't want to see a compromised version of Wilder. I wouldn't want to see a Wilder who, you know, suffered a recent injury and there was a, a real possibility that he might not be 100%. I wouldn't want to see that version of Wilder against Fury. I want to see both guys as healthy as they can possibly be going into the rematch. So we can find out for sure who the better man actually is. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's happening, I'm out. Well, this is interesting. Hardly surprising, but it is interesting. <laughs> Steven Espinoza has revealed that Showtime had the opportunity to put on Deontay Wilder versus Luis Ortiz 2 on pay-per-view, but they turned it down. You know, Espinoza several months ago was talking about loyalty and this, that, and the other. Now he has the opportunity to put on Deontay Wilder-Ortiz rematch on pay-per-view. He turns it down. Where's his loyalty? <laughs> Espinoza says that it didn't make financial sense, which tells you what? It tells you that Showtime are not in the business of taking big financial risks at this point. Fox appeared to have overtaken them uh, in the boxing market. But it also alludes to the fact that Deontay Wilder is still not a big name in the United States. Because if you're truly a big name, you're on pay-per-view. You know, unless you're on DAZN, where it's a subscription service. But when Canelo was on uh, HBO, and when Canelo was on Showtime, like 99% of his fights, championship fights after a certain time, were pay-per-view fights. He's a pay-per-view fighter, right? Anthony Joshua, when he was fighting in the UK ever since the Dylan White fight, he was pay-per-view. But with Deontay Wilder, well, they're still not sure if it's financially viable to put this guy on pay-per-view. And... Eddie Hearn was recently asked about his opinion on why the Wilder Ortiz rematch hasn't been formally announced yet, why we haven't had a press conference and all this kind of stuff. And he said, in his opinion, it's probably because they're struggling to get the money together. And based upon what Steven Espinoza has said, 
that would appear to be the case. That they had that they've delayed formally announcing the venue and formally announcing the date, etc., because they're struggling to get the money together. Deontay Wilder has been WBC heavyweight champion for how many years now? And he's still struggling to put together pay-per-views. The Dominic, the uh, yeah, Dominic Brazil fight wasn't a pay-per-view. The only pay-per-view that Deontay Wilder's done is a Tyson Fury fight. Without a dance partner like Fury, they're seriously struggling. Showtime wouldn't have turned it down if they felt like they were going to make a decent profit. They turned it down because they, they, they feel like they, they can't make a decent profit. And it's a big financial risk. Deontay Wilder, once again, I have to say this, he should have taken the Anthony Joshua fight when he had the opportunity. It was a terrible decision by Wilder to turn the Joshua fight down. If he'd taken on Joshua and beaten him, he would be the undisputed heavyweight champion right now. All of the hype that surrounded Anthony Joshua worldwide, not just in the UK, Wilder would, would have inherited that. The highlights of him knocking Anthony Joshua out would have been played over and over again on American television and American networks. He would be a much bigger star than he is right now if he'd taken on AJ and beaten him and become undisputed. So it was a massive missed opportunity by Deontay Wilder, a terrible decision. And if Wilder has any, had any sense, which he obviously doesn't, but if he did have any sense, he'd be taking a long, hard look at the people around him and saying to them, hey, why did you advise me not to take that fight? Why did you advise me to turn down all these deals? You know? And again, this revelation by Steven Espinoza is indicative of Deontay Wilder's lack of um, comparative market value, his relative market value. He should be worth way more than this. Deontay Wilder should be in a position where different networks in the United States are fighting to try and get his signature to be on their pay-per-view platform. That's what should be happening. But instead, it's not. You know. I've heard this argument from uh, American boxing fans mainly, that the only reason why boxing in the UK is as popular as it is and people like AJ, etc. are as big as they are is because in the UK there are, there's no competition for boxing. There are no other sports. It's just boxing and football and that's it. I mean, that's completely untrue. Now, Britain doesn't have as many sports as the United States, which are popular, but the United States is a much bigger country. But Britain has still got plenty of sports which are popular. Football's popular. Rugby's popular. Motorsport is popular. Tennis is very popular. You know, obviously I said football, boxing. I mean, even MMA is popular in the UK. There are many, many sports that are popular in the UK. Cricket even still has a big following. So the real, re I mean, and, and an example actually of how what they're saying is not true is the fact that MMA is so popular in the United States. How is it that MMA is doing great in America, but boxing isn't? How is that possible? Because it's a combat sport, just like boxing. It's the same kind of market. 
Yeah, MMA fans are a different, uh, you know, different set of fans, but there are many fans who cross over from MMA to boxing. There are many people who are fans of both. I see that in my boxing group all the time. So what is boxing in America doing wrong, which MMA is doing right? Yeah, if, if you do it the right way, you can have household names in boxing in America. And if it was so easy in the UK to make stars all the time and have this thriving boxing scene, why didn't Frank Warren do it prior to Eddie Hearn coming on the scene? Because boxing was in the dark ages prior to Eddie Hearn taking over matchroom boxing and having this exclusive deal with Sky. Boxing was in the dark ages in Britain. I mean, Hearn was scraping by in the early days by putting on prize fighter tournaments all the time. There was hardly any big shows. And again, that's coming out of the old Frank Warren era when he was the top promoter. It was dead. <laughs> all right? So if it was that easy, Frank Warren would have done it. It, it, it ain't that easy. You need the right talent. You need the right strategy. Yeah, boxing in the early 2000s in Britain, I showed a Wikipedia article which showed where boxing was in relation to other sports in Britain. And it was about ninth or 10th most popular sport in Britain in the early 2000s. Now it must be in the top three most popular sports in Britain. Football is still far more popular than boxing in, in Britain today. But boxing is not too far behind. It might be two or three. In America, boxing used to be very popular. You know, top five sports in America in the 80s. Maybe even up until the 90s. But today, it's doing horrible. <laughs> Let's be real. And the way that boxing is marketed, the way that the fighters are promoted, etc., it all needs to be overhauled. Um, I'm going to do a separate video on what I think the future of boxing needs to be, not only in America, but worldwide in terms of taking the sport to the next level for the consumer. I'm going to do a separate video about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, for now, I'll just leave you guys with my thoughts on Deontay Wilder and Luis Ortiz being rejected, turned down by Showtime. They don't think it's financially viable. What has gone wrong? in a promotion of Deontay Wilder's career, that he's still struggling to sell himself as a pay-per-view fighter to networks. After all these years as champion, after all these rivalries, I mean, Wilder was talking about doing 2 million pay-per-view sales for the Tyson Fury rematch. How many tickets did Tyson Fury sell for the Otto Wallen fight? Was it something like 3,000 tickets and gave away the rest as comps? Wilder is getting rejected by Showtime for a pay-per-view on their network against Ortiz. The first fight was a great fight. It's not like he's fighting a dud. He's fighting a legit guy. And they're rejecting it. What's going on with Deontay Wilder's career, man? Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's happening I'm out. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week covering a wide variety of controversial topics as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, 
you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today. Anthony Joshua has vowed to be more switched on and more lively in the lead up to, and I guess during, the Andy Ruiz rematch. Now, I've long said that it's important for a fighter not to start behaving out of character, okay? Unless their character has been conducive to them constantly losing or failing on the big stage, an example of that would be Buster Douglas. Because Buster Douglas, although he was to some degree talented, he never quite had the uh, the confidence or the killer instinct to succeed at the very highest level. That was until he fought Mike Tyson in February of 1990. In that fight, following the very, very recent death of his mom, who he was extremely close to, Buster Douglas acted out of character. He was far more assertive, aggressive, and assured than we'd ever seen him before at the highest level. And he pulled off the biggest upset in boxing history that night. But when you're talking about the majority of top-level fighters like AJ, when they're acting out a character, that is usually the sign that something's wrong. That's usually the sign that uh, they're not where they need to be mentally. And sometimes they might feel like they have to act out a character for whatever reason. AJ claims that he was too relaxed going into the Andy Ruiz fight, which is completely at odds with what most of us observed when he was walking to the ring. Because far from being too relaxed, he seemed extremely nervous. And everybody just about mentioned it before the first bell. There were people tweeting, there were people in my Facebook boxing group, and everybody was saying, AJ looks extremely nervous. And where people who have seen AJ fight his whole career, from day dot, in fact, there are, you know, some of us who are watching AJ even before he turned pro, even before the Olympics. And I've never seen AJ look so nervous as he looked before the opening bell of, of the Ruiz fight. Very strange. But yet he's coming out saying that he was too relaxed. You know, I don't know what's going on there. He says he needs to be more lively for the Ruiz fight. I don't think, in you know, as an outsider looking in, I don't think he needs to be more lively. I think he needs to be more relaxed. <laughs> Which is going to be difficult, considering the fact that Ruiz splattered him, splattered him all over the canvas first time around. You know, when you're going in there with a guy who's going to come forward at you, put you under pressure, and you know he's got the power to hurt you and drop you, and he dropped you four times previously, it's hard to stay relaxed under those circumstances. So we'll see whether AJ can keep his nerve. Now, what I would agree with is that AJ maybe went a little bit Hollywood 
in his mentality. Uh, not only just for the Ruiz fight, but for several years now, I think fame might have softened AJ a bit. And he does need to get back to the old spitting sawdust, hardcore mentality that he had on the way up. I've mentioned it many times before, but like when he fought Dylan White, that kind of arrogant, vicious attitude is what he needs going into this rematch because he's up against it now. So he needs to get that back, yes. But that's not acting out of character. That's within AJ's character. I think his character has you know, changed a little bit the more success he's had. He's talked about distractions outside the ring, you know, family issues and whatever. You know, hopefully he's got those sorted. But what you don't want to see from AJ is him trying to reinvent the wheel. And I'm talking about in terms of his own mentality. You don't want to see him try to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to see AJ come out too fired up because here's a guy who struggled when it comes to stamina. And I've never been convinced by AJ's stamina. You go back and look at my videos after even after the Joseph Parker fight what was I saying I was like yeah he went 12 rounds but it was at such a slow pace anybody could have gone 12 rounds at that pace so I, I've never been fully convinced by AJ stamina you know <clears throat> and if you go into a fight angry or too hyped etc well that's going to hurt your stamina in order for your stamina to be as good as it can possibly be, you need to be relaxed. That's what you need to be. Taking off the muscle, I think, was a good move uh, by AJ. I think that will help him with regards to stamina, speed, mobility, etc. It's a good move. And sometimes when you're skinnier, right? sometimes when you're lighter, it can change your mentality. It can change your, your brain chemistry. And you can feel more mean when you're lighter. Any fighters out there who have had to make weight, they will know exactly what I'm talking about. But when you actually have to starve yourself and get your weight down, and you're not, you know, big, bulky, or muscly, but you're more lean, you feel more mean, <laughs> you know? And AJ, I think, is going to need that too. He's going to need to feel more mean and be more mean in the fight. But he don't need to be angry. He don't need to be going in there trying to hype himself up. I think that'll be to his detriment. He needs to be calm. He needs to be mean, but in a cold, calculated kind of way. You know, vicious in a cold, calculated way. Not in a hot-headed, hyper kind of way. No, 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 that's not going to help him. That's going to be to his detriment. Cold and calculated and spiteful is what he needs. You know, Vladimir Klitschko style. When Klitschko was at his best, he wasn't a hot-headed fighter. He was cold and he was calculated and he was vicious. Don't get it twisted. Vladimir Klitschko was a vicious fighter. You know, um, I often criticized him and I was one of his biggest critics for uh, the jab, jab, grab routine and leaning all over opponents to the point where it was not only excessive, but blatantly illegal. But Klitschko was a ruthless guy. You know, Klitschko liked knocking people out. He liked hurting opponents. You know, don't let his PC persona fool you. Vladimir Klitschko is vicious. AJ needs that same kind of cold, calculated viciousness. Not the incessant holding and all that kind of business, but the cold, calculated viciousness is what he needs. I didn't really see it in the Parker fight, to be honest. I saw calculated 
a calculated approach in a Parker fight, but I didn't see the viciousness. You need to add some spitefulness to the cold and calculated viciousness uh, to be most effective with that particular style. You know, maybe we'll see it here now that his back's up against the wall. As I've said previously, the fact that AJ has lost in the past uh, in, in the amateurs and been stopped and come back from that and had success in a relatively short space of time, that should stand him in good stead. To be fair, on those occasions, he didn't have all the pressure that he's got on him here. So it's one thing being able to do that in the past of the amateurs when not many people were watching. But when the whole world is watching, and it's a very, you know, relatively quick turnaround, just whatever it is, five or six months from the first fight to the rematch, it's going to be hard to hold his nerve. We'll see if he can do it. But let me know what you guys think in the comments section below. It's happening, I'm out. How you doing? Back from Vegas. Looking, looking all right. I'm, I'm fairly tired. How are you I'm feeling? I'm tired. I've not had a good night's sleep since I've been back. For some reason, I've not been able to get my uh, time zone sorted out for me sleeping. I suppose the, uh, the huge gash on Tyson's head probably gave you a bit of a sleepless night as well, didn't it? Well, it certainly was a hair-raising experience more for him than it was for me. But, uh, yeah, but he done it. He showed what he's made of, you know, tremendous heart and fought his way through in really difficult circumstances. You know, when you've got a cut like that, or two cuts that he had, and the, the amount of blood that was uh, coming out of them, which impaired his vision, he'd done, he'd done tremendously well. Have you spoken to him since? Yeah, I spoke to him yesterday. He had the stitches taken out yesterday, and he he was you know he was all okay, so he was all fine and ready to go. It's you know, it, it mean, it, you know it's a cut. They're nothing cuts. You know, let's get on with it. And uh, he's got, you know he's got quite a bit of a positive mentality about him regarding everything. Yeah, I think uh, having known Tyson so far as as we have done throughout his comeback. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not a surprise that a cut's not enough to keep him down. It's just it? a flesh wound, <laughs> nothing, yeah. Quite a significant one, though. But well, it you... was. I mean, like Monty Python, weren't it? You know, come back and say that again, cut the arm off the other arm and the legs and carry on. But he's just, that's just how he is. That's what he's made of. And the actual fight itself, um, I mean, some, some, we know what boxing fans are like. Everyone will find faults in everything. And yeah. a lot of people have said, oh, yeah, well, he was challenged against... Otto Wallin and shouldn't have done because he was a relative unknown at the time. But also, on the on the positive side, I think he had a wide points victory against someone who was probably better than he thought he was with one eye. So it was it was actually a good night. Well, you know, Wallin, you've got to remember, and also if you're you know from Wallin's point of view and you look at his um, his corner men and so forth, they're watching a doctor go up a couple of times to examine it. Referee kept you know looking at it. If I was in the opposite corner with, you know, if I was in the Wiley's, I'd be saying, you know, keep on him, keep pressing him, the referee will stop it. Keep going, you know, and, and it gives him a lot of impulse, you know, urged him on and uh, got the best out of him. But, you know, he was, you know, Wallin was an undefeated fighter and he didn't get Tyson at his best because he was impaired. Had he been at his best, he may have stopped him, I don't know. But the, but the fact of the matter is you can't knock that guy as an opponent. And I think it's quite must be made of the fact that it didn't get stopped but you do see in these in these bigger fights they are allowed to go on a little longer I think looking back to Badu Jack against Marcus Brown I think he had that massive cut in the middle of his head and he was around, allowed to finish the fight but obviously lost because the cut impaired him that much so it's still a testament to Tyson that he well, could finish only, it. At the end of the day you've got to look at the judge's card and the judge's card scorecards said what it was you know he, he was winning the fight he wasn't behind at any stage. He was winning the fight, and uh, that's it. That and the cut 
cut, you know, back in the dressing room. It, by the time it got seen to it, you know, it stopped bleeding and that was it. You know, it, cuts, cuts are awful, but it, because of the blood, it always looks much worse than it is. And on the night you said that it wasn't going to need, that the doctor said it didn't need sort of extra plastic surgery and it was quite a sort of clean cut despite the fact it was enormous. Yeah, as much as they were, you know, one was a quite a long cut and the other one was on the eyebrow. So not on the eyebrow, on the eyelid. Um, but they were pretty straightforward. And another heavyweight in your, uh, in your stable we're here for today. Daniel Dubois fighting on Friday night, Royal Albert Hall. The posh, the posh York Hall. The posh York Hall, yeah. Not a bad seat in the house. And Daniel now going for, I think, the, the, the tagline for him at the moment is all the belts, isn't it? He's just trying to pick them all up on the way up to the top. And how excited are you about seeing him going into the ring on Friday night? I'm always excited about seeing him going. You know, he, uh, we, you know I spent the morning with him, we'd done talk sport and a few other interviews and that, and he's... Uh, He's he's becoming quite, you know he's becoming as confident out the ring as he certainly is in the ring. He he give a good account of himself and you know I I want to see him back in action. I want to see him fight regularly. The more the more often the fights, the more experience he's going to get. We know he's a really big puncher. We know that he can if he clips anybody they'll go or they'll certainly hurt them. And uh, I just want to see him get a bit more boxing experience and that can only happen from fights and obviously training for fights. So keep him busy. This fight on. Uh, Friday, I don't want to hear again that you know it's a knockover, it's an easy job. He's fighting the you know the, the guy who is the you know who he's got to fight for the Commonwealth title, right? Commonwealth title. So he comes through that, then we can look further for the future. But he's you know he's a very fighting, he's pretty confident himself. So who knows? Don't want another wall in and you know one of those situations on our hands. Uh, I just need Daniel to go out there and do what he does and does well, which is to be patient and work behind his jab and hopefully take the guy out. And like you said, he's starting to relish the spotlight a bit more than what we've seen earlier in his career. He's here today in another another flashy suit. I suppose he's taking some advice from you. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he actually gave me his tailor's card today. No, he's, uh, he, yeah, he's looking the part, isn't he? And why shouldn't he? He's a young man. He's, he's doing well for himself and giving a good account of himself. And he's certainly looking the part now outside the ring as well, yeah. Do you think that's one of the benefits of throwing uh, him with Gorman as early as, as early as you did? Obviously, it was a risk with both fighters uh, early in their career, but they insisted on having it, and you were a bit sceptical about making it that early, but you did, and now already it seems like there's an extra level to him in terms of like star power. Yeah, it does, and, and I think the public acknowledged that. They, you know, they could see these two guys, you know, although you know, with Nathan and him, they were both undefeated, and uh, everybody had a view on the fight. A lot of people fancied Nathan to do the job after a few rounds, and if if if, uh, if um, Daniel hadn't taken him out, it all transpired, and he won the fight. But um, that that I think, from Daniel's perspective and point of view, is has uh, has has gotten gotten him more fans. You know, the fact that you know he did step up to the plate, he didn't avoid the fight, nor has he avoided anybody who you know who's been put in front of him. You know, this guy he's fighting is the guy he's got to fight for the Commonwealth. Um, Another undefeated fighter, so it's going to be quite a quite a, a, an interesting night. Always a bit of an aura now when he steps in the ring. I noticed the last time we were out before the kind of mood shifted. It's a bit of electric, isn't there? In the air, you know, you waited the anticipation for it and so forth. But you know, look, the crowds, the, 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 the boxing public, the crowds love the big guys, don't they? They love the big heavy, heavyweights, and if they're explosive, even more so. You know, you've seen that with. Um, Anthony Joshua and Tyson, when he was knocking, he was knocking a load of, stopping a load of guys on early on in his career. 
they, they, the crowd, the crowds loved that. They, that's what they like to see with big men. Nicola Adams returning uh, to the ring on Friday. There was talk of it being a unification fight, and then she got the belt without fighting. I think she was a bit upset that she didn't have to win it. And yeah. Now this is kind of winning it outright for her, isn't it? What, what's what's happened so far with that fight? Well, she was going to have the unification, but the girl she was fighting, I think it was for the IBF version, she got injured, so she weren't available. So now, as you just said, that's what's going on. She goes in as champion. She was the interim. The champion, something happens to her. She was injured, so she's now... Um, Become become champion, but this fight obviously is a is a fight in the ring for the belt, and uh, she'd probably get more pleasure out of that if she comes through winning that one. Any place to see her back in the ring? It's been a little while. It's a long it? time, and you know we lost a lot of momentum. I've got to be really honest about it. Is that you know we got her off to a good start, and she for various reasons, some personal from her perspective, and a couple of other things happened. She's not had the momentum that was needed. Um, hopefully this is the start of, you know, if she comes through the fight, okay, start of uh, her being more busy, more active, and that'll be great for her and obviously great for women's boxing. And uh, another good fight on the undercard. Obviously we had uh, Bethel Green a couple of weeks back. Great undercard, lots great of close show, fights yeah. there. Now we've got Archie Sharp against Declan Gary, which I think is probably a, a sort of sneaky show stealer, isn't it, somewhere on the undercard? Well, you know that, I mean, he's always, he always has a good fight, Archie. And uh, Declan's coming to, you know, another one. He fancies the job. So I think we're going to get a bit of a... I think you will get a crowd pleaser out of that. That's got, like, fight written all over it. And, again, it's more spotlight on, on Archie Sharp. And I think last time we were here having a press conference and Archie was here, he was mentioning the name of like, Jamel Herring and things like that. How far should he come through on, on Friday night? How far in his future do you think those kind of big, big fights are? I think a couple of more fights and, and we can we can get him in that position and then, fingers crossed, we can make a fight for him where uh, you know he's got an opportunity of winning a world title. And then going forward in the calendar, in the schedule, we've got Josh Warrington on the 12th of October. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then what do we have going on past We've got a couple of small shows, then we're doing a big show probably in Cardiff. We're going to be announcing that soon. And then, subject to what happens on Friday, another show in London in December. And saying it's subject to happen. Subject. Well, we've got to get, you know, we've got it's a, a heavyweight one. Yeah, heavyweight one. And obviously, uh, we've got to get um, Joe Joyce out, amongst many others. I want to see the comeback, a comeback fight for Anthony Yard. So, we got, you know, we're going to be busy. Great for domestic boxing. We're about British boxing, domestic boxing. That's what we're about. How much have you spoken to Anthony since Russia? I spoke to him a couple of times over the weekend. He was coming to football with us on the Saturday, coming to the Arsenal match, um, but he, I think he had a bit of food poisoning, so he couldn't make it. And he's, off, he's going on holiday for a couple of weeks, so when he gets back, we're going to sit down with him and the team and go through what the future is. How is he feeling? Because he was saying uh, he, he felt like he had the right to be upset, and Tunde is obviously trying to be very positive all the time and, and Anthony was saying, oh no, I want to be upset, I'm, I'm angry about this, I'm angry about this. Is he kind of thinking he wants to get back straight at that level and get retribution or is he willing to accept that there's maybe a couple of fights more experience required? Look, it, you know, I, I'm, I know I bore everybody with it, you know, amateur-wise, 12 fights, that's no experience as a, as a fighter and was it 20, 20 fights now, roughly 20 fights he's had as a, as a pro and then you're going with a guy with the amount of experience that um, Kobolev had, been there for a long time, fought at great amateur level, also uh, world champion. I think 15 defences of the title, was it 14 or 15 defences? That's a big step up for him, but he showed he deserves to be in that class and he was that much away from winning it. He really was that much away from stopping him. 
if he'd got the tactics a bit right, you know, a bit differently, if he'd have done that earlier on, might have been a different story. You know, he waited till the eighth round before he actually put it on him. I think if he'd have done it a bit earlier, it may have been a different story. But you know what? It's experience, and you learn from experience. What he showed, though, he deserves to be up there in that class. And I think that even though he, you know, he come away with a loss on it, that'll stand him in good stead. And I think that you know the British public, everybody I speak to about the fight, they all they all really now appreciate how good Anthony Yard is and how potentially how good he can be. And Joe Joyce, I've seen him and Sam Jones just calling everyone out. Is that giving you a headache? I know sometimes it can be hard to find an opponent because no one really wants to fight him, do they? <laughs> well, they don't. It's you know the fact. Well, you've got to take your hat off to him, Joe. He just he, he does want to fight um, anybody. He's, he's a man in a hurry. But uh, we're working hard on it, and hopefully we'll have a big name for him or a decent name for him for his fight in December. And as for Josh, I mentioned his fight earlier against Sofian Tukic. Um, he looked. <laughs> when we saw him at the press conference, he actually looked a bit devastated because he, he was hoping for that big sort of Vegas yeah, fight, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think now he's got his training head on and he's, he's ready for the fight and it's all switched on again. But what, what are you expecting from his... Well, he's uh, a consummate professional. You know, he's a professional and his dad, Sean, has done a marvellous job with him. He's a, you know, he's a great trainer, a great team. And he'll have that... He's got his fighting head on. He's, and listen, you can't take it for granted. The guy is the highest available contender for him to... To, to fight in the IBF, and that's what we've done. We delivered the next big, best thing. Then after that, we've got to look at trying somehow to get a unification. But they don't want to fight him. Santa Cruz didn't want to fight him, and after Cole Frampton had his fight with Josh, he said he was a much better fighter than Santa Cruz, and I'm sure Santa Cruz heard that and knows that. So he's out the picture, and Valdez moved up a weight, which left, um, what's his name, Shekerstein uh, uh, yeah. to fight for the vacant title. So hopefully... Early next year, we can get a fight on. I want to do one at Lee, at Ellen Road. We want to get him on at Ellen Road. We want to get him back there. And the only way we can do that is with a big fight. So we're going to be moving heaven and earth for him. And are you going to get Big Sean over at Vegas at any point? <laughs> oh, could you imagine? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'd love to. I mean, you know, look, Josh is a, is a great guy. I mean, I really in, you know, enjoy promoting him. He was one of them that was going to be left behind. You know, there weren't enough effort and work put into him, they just sort of parked him up and considered him not to be worthy of it. You know, he came with me and I made it, you know, I say came with me, I made him an offer which I knew they wouldn't refuse, came with us and we delivered. And he's shown now what he's all about, you know what I mean? He is top quality and uh, he deserves all he gets and I'm going to really, as I say, move heaven and earth to deliver him a big fight. Lovely. Cheers, Ray. Thank you, Amir. Thank you very much. Cheers. This is Rob Tebbett for Boxing Social in association with Betfred. Joined here today by Dominic Ingle. We're down at BXR in London, ahead of Billy Joe's. Well, it's after Billy Joe's public workout. How are you, Dom? How are you doing, Bob? What did you call me? Rob. Did you call me Bob? No, I didn't call you Bob. <laughs> I'm all right. Really Sheffield, all right, Bob. That's what they say. Yeah, yeah Sheffield did it. Well, we know, we know a lad who uses that phrase. All right, Bob. That's what you're saying. You don't actually know people. You're not that friendly with you. Are you not that friendly with me? I am, of course. I'm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be getting an interview, would you? <laughs> Well, I'm very grateful to hear that. Um, let's start with Billy Joe Saunders. Uh, you're back together. Talk to me a little bit about that. How did that come about? Yes, it's uh, you know it was never an issue in the first place. We had a good couple of fights before with Munro and Lemieux. He won the world super middleweight title with uh, Ben. You know, did a good job there, and he's got a big uh, future in front of him now. He's with obviously with Matchroom, big fights ahead, and uh, you know the door was always left open for Billy. But even when he went, you know we didn't have a fallout. 
Uh, I said, anytime you need to come back, if you need any help, I'm always there. You know, I understand what you've got to do. You need to move around, do your thing. And he's found himself back in the gym and, uh, you know, everything's flowing at the minute. And when I spoke to Billy Joe after he initially went to go and train with Ben full time, he said that uh, potentially distractions in Sheffield were one of the reasons. Now he's gone back into the gym. I assume those distractions are either not an issue or that maybe wasn't the case. Tell me about that. Maybe the distractions weren't anything to do with the boxing gym, but who knows? But listen, it doesn't really matter, you know, why's and wherefores. We boxing, you're training for a fight. You know, you're training for a fight. Uh, 12, 16 week camp, you do your fight, you have a bit of downtime, you think about what you want to do next. And I don't think at any time really in Billy's career he's had an actual plan put in front of him. It's never been really consistent. Uh, and for people like Billy who are easily distracted, you need points in the year where you know you're going to be fighting. You look at Mayweather, he always fights in May, always fights in September, you've got to work towards him. It was never plain sailing for Billy. And I think when he considered himself right up there with the likes of Golovkin and Canelo, you know, the middleweight champions, that you know, he probably thought he should be getting the same treatment. And it never quite picked up after the Lemieux fight. He had a fantastic fight against Lemieux, and I think he thought big fights going to happen, and they didn't. And he kind of lost his uh, his way a little bit. So you know, he picked himself back up. He's won another world title at a higher weight. Uh, he's right. He's with the right team now, and you know, he's going to get put into the fights whether he likes it or not. He's he's there to have a fight. He's 30 years old. He hasn't got time to waste now. He's got to throw himself into the mix. He left you as a 160 pounder comes back as a 168 pounder what's your thought on that you're somebody who has a solid understanding of the physiolo physiological side of things and weight management etc are you happy with him as a super middleweight as opposed to middleweight um yeah he can fight a super he's big enough um he's a you know he's a big middleweight for me he's very very thick set um but i think at the right fights he would motivate himself to get back down to you know to middleweight to the middleweight limit so it's, it's going to be what the fights are i think he could quite easily operate between middleweight and super middleweight i don't think light heavyweights you know, any good for him. I know Canelo's gone up to fight Kovalev, but I think for Billy, the, the ideal way is middleweight to super middleweight. When you have a fighter and he goes away and spends a, a camp with another trainer and then he comes back, what's that like for you? Do you, do you kind of try and iron out habits that he's potentially learned elsewhere or no, what's that like? He, no, because he hasn't got any bad habits. He came to me from Jimmy Tibbs. He was an, a ready-made product. So what you're trying to do then is just embellish what he's already got. You can't change him. You, you know, you, you, we worked on his fitness and his diet better. Um, and when he came, you know, went from me to Ben or from Ben to me, nothing's changed. He's the same. There's nothing he wouldn't know he'd, he'd even been away because Billy knows how to control his boxing. He, he, he just perfects the shots that he wants to perfect. He hasn't, he hasn't really got any bad habits. His bad, bad habits are uh, eating junk food and you know taking too much time off between fights. That's it. Boxing-wise, when he's switched on, he's the easiest kid to train in the world. Last time that you were with Billy Joe Saunders, before the Andrade fight, there was the well-publicised Varda issues. What can you say to fans who are potentially looking back at that with you and him reuniting for this? Are you, are you taking things a little bit more carefully this time? Are you looking into things a little bit clearer or deeper? Listen, we the, the best drug talk, the the best drug organisation in the world is UCAD, is Ucantidoping under the Ward umbrella. Ward is just a, an operation set up in America because they don't have they have USADA. But they're not as regular, fighters aren't as regularly tested as, as the UK fighters. So there's an imbalance there. We could have a fighter in the UK, you know, who's getting drug tested rigorously. And in, in America, they're not. They get tested after the fight. It's not fair. So you have to sign up to the, if you're fighting an American porn, a, opponent, it's better for the English fighter to be on VADA. VADA have got slightly different rules about what they call, you know, compet in competition. You know, I don't care what anybody says. In competition is the day you fight. Vorder class is the day you sign the contract for your training for your, for your, your training camp. That could be ten weeks. That's not competition. So it, it was actually 
you know, one of the rules that we, that we infringed. Um, so it's, you know, he didn't get a ban. He's still boxing, otherwise, you know, that kind of thing in the UK, you know, getting a ban for that, you're talking two to four years, but he's still boxing. So everybody blew that out of proportion. Uh, you know, made a thing of it. All right, he had a little bit. Of, he got his his ranking uh, lowered in the WBO, but he still came back as a champion. So it's a lot of you know, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, to be honest. And it benefited at the time. You know, realistically, it benefited Eddie Earn and Andrade. They nicked that title. You know, we're working with Eddie, but they nicked that title off Billy Joe Saunders. That's as plain and simple as it is. So and. You know, Billy will always rise to the top and he's proved his point, hasn't he? So, you know, there's not going to be any issues. He's, he's still going to be Vada tester because he's, he's fighting American fighters. It was a case of not reading the small print and, and thinking that all drug, drug testing organisations have a uniform code. Well, under water they do. You know, uh, United States Anti-Doping, UK Anti-Doping, uh, you know, all them organisations were signed up to water. It's all uniform. Vada is just a, it's an independent collection agency. That's what it is. But he will be under VADA for this fight because he's boxing in America this time around, so he will be under VADA for that, is that right? I think the contract he's got with, with Eddie Earn, because they have a lot of fights in America, it's going to be under VADA. But he still gets tested by UCAD, that's our organisation, that's by the British Border Control, regardless of what's... And obviously we've got the issue there with Dillian White was tested by VADA and UCAD and all these, you know, and it's, it, it can get complicated. Um, but like I say, we, we haven't got, no, got a problem with that. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it protects Billy as much as it protects anybody else. You mentioned that kind of having UCAD, USADA, VADA, WADA, like a lot of fans are very confused by that. What do you think could be done to make it a little bit simpler all around, not even for fans, but for trainers, for fighters, etc.? I don't think there is ever going to be an easy way. I do think the VADA system is good because it needs tidying up in America. You know, the, I've been in America years back when, you know, sometimes you don't even get drug tested after a world title fight. So, you know, at least you know... It's like when Kel Brook boxed Golovkin when he boxed, uh, when he boxed Errol Spence. He was tested by UCAD, VADA, USADA. He had, he had three different organisations testing him. Well, you know, it was all good. It's, it's not a problem. Um, I don't think you can iron that problem out. It's always going to be the same. Uh, but we definitely need VADA in there, uh, you know, to keep up the, the American side clean. Mention Kel Brook, another person who's returned to you. I don't know what it is about you, Dom, that people can't stay away once they leave. What? Talk to me a little bit about Kel coming back into the gym. Something that you kind of preempted a little bit at one point, I remember. Yeah, I mean, he might have left physically, but mentally they're always in that place. He's been there since 10 years old, and, you know, people do fancy a change. Um, you know, you walk into the same gym day in, day out for 20 years. It can get a bit, you know, daunting or a bit boring, and sometimes you have to do something different to realise, you know what, that's where I want to be. He went off and did his own thing, you know, he, he scraped through that fight, he could have put in a much better performance and, you know, uh, Zarafa had a good win the other week against Jeff Owen. Maybe that made Kel's wins better, but to be honest, looking at that opponent when I saw him, I thought, Kel being on form, he'll stop this kid in, in six rounds, uh, he'll get the calm fight, get a big payday and finish. And it, it, this, he didn't really go to the script, so I didn't particularly expecting back because I thought he would beat that kid quite easily and think well yeah I've proved a point I can do it on my own uh, I'll take the calm fight and I'm off but it, it didn't work out that way but it very rarely does you know uh, I said this to the fighters a lot there's there's, a, there's very few fighters out there uh, one of them being Floyd Mayweather who can actually train themselves who probably know more than the trainers uh, he knows how to train himself he knows how to fight he knows what opponents to have there's very few fighters like that and it's a case of bringing these fighters to the peak uh, giving them the game plan and sending them in, they do the fighting. Uh, you know, some fighters uh, don't need that, very few, but most do. I think that was the case with Kel Brook. Um, you know, he made a very hard job out of the Zarafa fight. 
and at the end, you know, it was on his own natural ability and boxing IQ what got him through that fight. It could have easily, it could have easily been another Jeff Horn situation, to be honest. 154 or 147 pounds. Where's Kel going to land? Same again. You know, it, for this fight, it's probably going to be 154. For the right fight, if Khan comes along or the bigger fights, you know, the, the, the other fights at 147, he will motivate himself for the right people, for Crawfords, you know, them type of guys. He, you know, he's, he's still talking about Errol Spence, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. He can still make 147, it's going to be hard, but there's always that motivating factor of wanting revenge or wanting to prove to people that he can get down to 147, and he can, but it's, it's a very lonely place, it's a hard, long camp, uh, you know, but that'll determine whether he's actually you know, going to get in the big fights. If he gets down to 147 and does it well, then he can put his money on him against any of those guys. You know, it's, it, if he can make that weight safely and comfortably and he looks good, then there's going to be a lot of people in trouble at that weight. And you believe he can do that? If, if the right fights come along, he can. If it's the right fight to motivate him, he's not going to do that for anybody. It's got to be the fight, what wets his lips, what motivates him, what puts the fear of God into him, and most of all, what's going to get him the most money. You mentioned Errol Spence, he's in action this weekend against Sean Porter, two opponents that you know very well from your time with. Kel, what did you make of that fight? Good fight, you know, Sean Porter's proved himself, he got beat against Kel Brook, but then became champion. Uh, he's been in some tough fights, beat some good kids. Errol Spence, new kid on the block, uh, you know, he's, he beat Kel Brook. And uh, it'd be an interesting matchup. I think Spence being a southpaw is going to cause, cause Porter problems. He's tall, Spence, uses his jab well. Uh, Porter likes to get in, in close and, and Spencer's very good body work as well so it's going to be difficult for uh, Porter because if he's on the outside Spencer's going to catch him with the long shots if he comes inside it's not a difficult place for Spencer to work either so you know Porter's going to have to have his best game I think Spencer's going to win on points and just finally uh, another man Ingle Jim uh, Kid Gallagher Barry has got himself another IBF final eliminator is that right? Yeah Ed is working on that now uh, with the guys in America so that should be announced in the next couple of days so just waiting he's never out of the gym he's, I think he's had a week off since he, since he boxed uh, Josh Warrington he's been back in the, he's, been, he's in the gym consistently so it's a case of just getting the date for that and working towards that as well and hopefully sometime in the new year being another world title fight How much did he learn from the Warrington fight? Uh, there's a lot of things to learn, but nothing to do with the boxing. Maybe the setup, you know, how it all worked out. Promoters, kid, how they put the officials in—they're all English. It's, there's lots of reasons why. Uh, you know, they're talking about snatching the title away from the from the champion. At the end of the day, um, Josh Warrington had to come down off the cloud nine after Galahad. He had some good wins against Frampton and Selby. Thought he was better than he was, and you know, the style to beat him was the style was the, was a game plan that Galahad put on him. Um, he hit him with more shots, he landed with more shots. Josh threw a lot, didn't land with as many. For me, he won that fight. Um, he got a lot of credibility from it. We heard Warrington talking about all these big fights and unifications fights in America. They've just faded into nowhere. But at the end of the day, he just didn't want to box Galahad. He was talking about you know, Santa Cruz and uh, Valdez and you know, who's he fighting next? You know what I mean? He's fighting a nobody next. So I know he's going to get excited by that, are they? So it's going, to be, it's going to be interesting to see where Josh Warrington goes next because I don't believe he's going to get them big fights. So we'll just have to wait and see. If he doesn't get those big fights, do you imagine a situation where he vacates his title rather than face Barry for a second time? Um, I, I don't know. I don't think so. He's a fighter. Uh, you know, the one thing about Josh Warrington, he can fight. And he, he, you know, not many fighters are going to do that. He will, he will take the fight. And, and if he wins, he wins. If he takes the loss, he takes the loss. You can't say it that way from him. But it must be a frustrating situation for him. He's an IBF champion. We had a similar situation with Kel Brook. Um, you know, didn't get him the big fights. And as a fighter, as a champion, you know, when he did get past Barry, 
uh, and get there. Yeah, you should have been looking for those big fights because that's another thing. You, you need to motivate yourself uh, and get into those big fights. I think he wants them. I think he does. You know, I do think he wants those fights and he wants to match himself against the best. I just think where he's at, promotion-wise, they're not going to be able to deliver. So, you know, it's a, it's a frustration, frustrating uh, position for Josh. And you can't take that away from him. He will have a fight. So, you know, good luck with that. Just finally, you make a very good point there about Kel throughout his career and, you know, the issues that he had getting those really, really big fights. What would... What's the plan now for Kel? How does he cement that legacy? Do you look back with regret the fact that, I mean, he won a world title at 147 when Manny Pacquiao was still active, when Floyd Mayweather was still active. Obviously, the Khan thing has dragged on for a number of years. How do you look at those now, or do you very much put that behind yourself and, and try and kind of solidify his legacy this way? Yeah, I don't, I don't look back. I mean, um, time's gone, time's gone, but I don't think, you know, much in the same way have we got Billy Joe Saunders? You know, he was a le legitimate champion at, at middleweight. And you never got people like Canelo or Golovkin uh, wanting to challenge him. And it, one minute it's because he's, he's not a big name or he doesn't put in a good performance. Then he puts in a good performance and they still don't want to fight him. And, it's, you know, I believe that Billy was avoided just like Kel was because realistically, you know, those two fighters in the prime were a nightmare for anybody. Anybody who can move and box, especially Billy. Billy Joe Saunders would be a nightmare opponent for Golovkin. Don't forget, we faced Golovkin with Kel Brook. And Kel Brook's a different fight to Billy Joe Saunders. But he has got, you know, and he's a natural mid middleweight, whereas Kel was coming up. So, you know, I think Billy would be all wrong for Golovkin, especially now he's, he's knocking on a little bit Golovkin. But nobody's beating Billy's door down. It's, it's just one of those things. You know, I wouldn't want to fight uh, Billy Joe Saunders if I were them either. But as far as Kel's concerned, I think we need to get this... Because he's had so much time out of the ring, it's always a case of... You know, he needs to have a fight to see where he's at. He looked great against Rabchenko uh, a year or so ago. Um, he was on the roll then, and then he boxed Zarafa, and it all, it all went wrong, and he's been out a year. You've got to have momentum as a fighter. He'd had time out after uh, Spence when he boxed Rabchenko, you know, talking about retiring, all these things, but he came back good. He looked good, powerful, strong, against a decent opponent, and really needed to build from that point onwards, but he didn't. You know, the momentum got uh, crushed again. So, basically, we're back to square one. Let's have a look at him in this next fight. Hopefully, he's out before December, in December, before the end of the year. See what he's got. And then get him back out early in the new year and try and get some momentum in the next 12 months. You know, he's maybe got... He's never took a lot of punishment in fights, apart from the eye sockets. So, you know, he, he speaks very clearly. He's got all his faculties. I look at Khan now and he's, he's starting to slur and he's been knocked out a few times. And I don't care what anybody says. When you're taking big shots in a ring and getting knocked out, it damages you. It does. There's no two ways about it. It might not be showing then, but further down the line it does. And Kelbrook's got none of that. Okay. Well, Dominic Ingle, always a pleasure to sit down and speak to you. Thanks very much for speaking to Boxing Social. Look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks a lot.